All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of Rethinking Faith. Uh, With you today is myself, Josh Patterson, as always, and unfortunately today, Marty could not join us, uh, but he's doing some important things. He has a job interview this morning, so be praying for him. Well, I guess praying for him right now wouldn't do too much good for you guys, but hopefully things went well for Marty this morning. Uh, Anyways, um, before we jump in, because I have have a super uh, cool guest here this morning, and um, we're going to talk about something that's uh, been super important to me, which is uh, divine violence. Uh, but I did want to tell you guys something. So recently I started playing uh, ice hockey and we had our, our first game. And in our first game we won and I actually ended up scoring a goal in my first ever game, which was super cool. Uh, but uh, what I really wanted to tell you guys about uh, has to do with our second game, uh, which we did not win. And uh, we lost, and you know the Bible says something about confessing your sins to one another. I actually got my very first penalty uh, in that game, and it wasn't a good one either. I got a two-minute minor for unsportsmanlike conduct. Um, I may or may not have thrown my stick down to the ice, which is you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> so I'm confessing uh, my sins to you guys, and hopefully you guys uh, will be gracious and grant me some forgiveness. Um, but anyway, we're not here to talk about ice hockey today. Uh, we do have a, a very cool guest, um, somebody that uh, actually I have met personally, which is awesome. I took classes with them, and with me today is Messiah College professor Derek, Dr. Eric Seibert. How's it going? Good, Josh. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on and, and taking some time today. Um, now, quick question for you, just like a housekeeping thing. Would you prefer me to refer to you as Dr. Seibert, Eric? What would you like for this Eric episode? Eric is great. Eric is great. All right. Well, sounds good. So, um, Eric, then we, we do have one question that we ask everybody who comes on the show. Um, and it's, it's a super important question. Not really. Um, <laughs> but we ask everyone when they come on the show, what is your favorite hockey team? Oh. Wow. Well, true confession, I, I don't follow hockey, sorry, so I, I don't think I could even name a favorite. <laughs> no. I don't know if that disqualifies me from the interview or not. Well, since Marty's not here, it won't disqualify you. I'm, I'm more <laughs> gracious than Marty is. But uh, no, it doesn't. You're definitely not the first, or I'm, I'm sure not the last, uh, who won't have one. Actually, we interviewed uh, Bruxy Cavey 
um, I think you're probably familiar with. Yes, I he, know Bruxy. Uh, he's up in Canada, and when we asked him, he was like, yeah, I'm a bad Canadian. I don't watch hockey. <laughs> <laughs> so not the first or the last, but I guess you're – so Messiah is located in, in Pennsylvania. So I guess if you had to choose, probably it would be between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. But if you're gonna go with a, yeah with a local team, probably one of those two would be the would be the team of choice. All right, well there you go. I won't. I will withhold my judgment uh, <laughs> on those teams. <laughs> I'm a Washington Capitals fan, uh, and those both are huge rivals. But at, during my time at Messiah, I had lots of friends who liked the either Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. So it's all good. It was all about restoration and reconciliation of those hockey relationships. Uh, <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well. Uh, can you just, you know, for our listeners who might not be familiar uh, with your work, could you just uh, give us some like kind of basic background information, who you are, what you do, maybe a little bit about your, your faith upbringing, those kind of things? Sure. Sweet. Um, I grew up in a Christian home and um, have been part of the Brethren in Christ Church, um, which is a church that a denomination that has Anabaptist, Pietist, and Wesleyan roots. Um, I've been part of that for uh, most of my life. I teach currently at Messiah College. I am professor of Old Testament here, and um, I, part of my church tradition is a tradition that has strong um, peace uh, roots. So we're a pacifist denomination. So I. I have grown up in that environment and also have grown up, uh, have come to love the Old Testament. So I, I have sort of a dilemma. I'm committed to peace and I, I work with texts that have a lot of violence. So I've had to try to figure out what to do with all that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting because prior uh, to me coming to Messiah, I didn't really, uh, I wasn't aware um, so much of things like nonviolence and uh, peace traditions and things like that. Um, but after I left Messiah, my whole perspective <laughs> had definitely been shifted, I think, for the better. Um, so now, you know, today I'm also uh, pretty strongly committed to nonviolence and um, have some Anabaptist tendencies and things like that. Um, but I, I re- so I referenced this a little bit earlier, but just uh, so our listeners know, I did. I attended Messiah College and I took, um, I think it's called uh, OT Lit. Yes. Is that a class? Yeah, so I yes. took Old Testament literature with you, and I had three things I wanted to share with you about that class. First, it was the hardest class I took <laughs> at Messiah. <laughs> it was one of my also one of my favorite classes. I really enjoyed um, like the lectures and stuff, but I never performed well on exams, so forgive me there. Um, but then also... Uh, just so listeners know, even though everything was super difficult, I think you were probably the most gracious and uh, merciful and helpful professor uh, that I had at Messiah, which was um, great, especially when I was struggling with things. But then also, uh, upon reflecting back at my time on Messiah, I realized that a, a huge turning point for me um, in my uh, theology, understanding of God, uh, understanding of, of Jesus and, and his work actually happened during your class. Um, and so there was a, a time when you shared, I believe, I think you said that you had written this, if not um, somebody else did, but you shared a story. Uh, and what it ended up being was at the end, it kind of flipped and it you were telling the story of David and Goliath, but from the perspective of Goliath and Goliath's family. Um, and that really stuck out to me. And I've used that example uh, with my students uh, many times. I'm a, a full-time high school and young adult pastor. Um, so that that was like a really key 
um, like a turning point for me just overall. So thank you for that. Yes, oh, you're welcome. That I mean, that story was actually written by someone else. Um, okay. and I had permission to sort of use that and and have used that in class. I'm just I'm really glad to hear that the class was um, sort of transformative for you in certain ways. I mean, it's always nice to to move beyond just academics to uh, personal engagement. So I'm glad that glad that happened. Yeah, absolutely. And like when I was thinking back to now, uh, I really wish I could like if I could with the things that I know now and like where I'm at now go back and retake a bunch of the classes I did when I was at Messiah, I think I would have had a much deeper appreciation uh, for the things that were going on. Um, because I kind of had just another personal thing. I had this, I would say this really stupid thing when I first started going to Messiah, where I would say, oh, I don't need theology, I have Jesus. Like, what's all that theology stuff? Which is a really dumb thing, an immature thing to say. <laughs> and so I kind of had some of those mentalities going into these different classes. Um, and now looking back, I really wish I didn't, uh, because I think I would have had such a greater, deeper appreciation and those kind of, uh, thinking process, I mean, quickly evaporated, um, during my time at Messiah. Uh, but I didn't start taking, you know, theology and Bible classes until my junior and senior year. So I really wish I could go back and do that all over again. Um, well, they always say hindsight is twenty twenty, and and part of what you're doing here in your podcast, I think, is helping maybe helping people uh, glean some of the wisdom that you gained along the way. So that's that's neat that you can share that with others. Oh, hopefully, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I hope that's that's what our show accomplishes. Um, and so, yeah, today one thing that we're gonna uh, that we're gonna be talking about specifically is something that uh, there's two things really that um, I struggle with when it comes to. Uh, the Christian faith, and that's the problem of evil, which everyone, I think, has a hard time with that, and also uh, divine violence, and specifically divine violence, uh, well, of course divine violence is attributed to God, but divine violence attributed to God in our scriptures, um, and what do we do with these things, uh, especially because of, um, you know, the nonviolent uh, tendencies and nonviolent convictions and things like that, uh, that I hold to, as you alluded to earlier, there's some troubling text um, and trying to figure out how they, you know, kind of fit together um, can be a difficult task. Um, but before we jump in there, why, so why, just like for motivational purposes, why is this even a topic that's worth discussing? I think it's really important. Um, you know, some some writers have talked about, you know, our view of God being kind of the most important thing about us, how we, you know, how we conceive of God really matters in terms of, I mean, not only how we worship, but but even if we worship. So if mm -hmm. we have faulty views of what God's like, that can be a real obstacle to faith. So I think that's one reason it's really important. Maybe an, another reason that for me it's, it's really matters is I've over the history of the Christian church, there have been so many examples of, of Christians who have used violent text to legitimize and justify further acts of violence. And so I think it's really important to think carefully about what these texts are saying and how we interpret these texts to make sure that we don't uh, repeat that pattern again. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, too, I guess, when we see, uh, you know, modern day things. Like, I think, um, and I could be wrong, but I, it seems like maybe around 9-11 after that whole tragedy happened, a lot of this divine violence stuff kind of um, almost had like a resurgence in people's minds because that's a very practical implication. Um, I mean, it's from a different belief system, a different religion carrying out uh, violence that they would attribute to God. Um, but Christians definitely are not uh, guilt-free when it comes to, to carrying out violence in the name of God either. 
No, I think that's right. It's easy to point the finger at others, but really when the when we as Christians look at our own tradition, our history is not particularly um, uh, good in the ways that these texts have often been used to, to harm others. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, it, it's what's strange to me um, and something that I was kind of jaded about for a little bit when I uh, started realizing this, but when like growing up in you know Sunday school and things like that, a lot of some of these extremely violent uh, stories are really watered down and then told as children's stories, and, like they kind of moralize you know the story and, and tell it for for kids, and that kind of blows my mind <laughs> that we do things that way. No, I, I agree. I mean, it's interesting to think about a story just as I mean as basic as you know we talk talk about as a story of Noah's Ark, right? And we we focus on the eight survivors inside the boat, but we don't tend to think about what's happening outside the ark. I mean, it's a it's a it's a horrible um, story for those who aren't inside the ark. And I think it's important at some point to come to grips with that. Now, granted, that might not be the the perspective you want to talk about with a five year old, but right. <laughs> when someone's when someone's fifteen, they you know you want to think about the story in a, in, a, in a broader sense, and it's important to make sure we 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 wrestle with some of those images. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like just uh, an example, something that came up the other day, I was having a conversation uh, with somebody who I work closely with, who is a leader of a parachurch organization in the area. Um, And (laughs) they had this idea that they've been doing. um, And when they told me about it, I kind of chuckled, not like, hopefully not in like a condescending way, but it it just kind of show goes to show that we don't often think about um, these stories or when the stories are watered down. So they started doing this thing where they would go to, they'd gather people and they would go to the local schools in the community and they would walk around the track seven times and pray seven different things and they called it a Jericho walk. And I chuckled because I was like, well, do you know what was supposed to happen after you do a Jericho walk? (laughs) Um, But I think it just, it kind of just goes to show, you know, and they have good intentions. I I don't want to, you know, talk poorly about them, but I just chuckled because that's, that's like a, a real life example. We don't often think about things in that way. No, I think I think that makes your point well. That again, we we sanitize the story. We we look at it from only one perspective. And we kind of forget the other dimension of, in that case, you know, the people behind the walls. When those walls collapse, what happens to them? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it's I mean, especially too, like with things that are happening in schools nowadays, it just <laughs> can be kind of a bad look to think about that. Um, but so anything anyway, one more thing before before we start uh, talking about some of these different approaches, different ways that people try to reconcile uh, divine violence. I think something important to note because it's going to shape. I think it shapes uh, all of these um, different approaches is our understanding of scripture and what it means to say scripture is inspired. Is it an Aaron? Is it infallible? Is it you know? whatever it is. So what kind of, um, do you agree with that? Do you think our, our, our view of scripture plays into this conversation? I think that's absolutely essential. I, yeah, I've thought about that quite a bit as I've talked about this topic, because I do think kind of where you enter the conversation, depending on how you view scripture, often determines kind of where you come out. Um, and I think some people have views of scripture where there's a lot, there's a lot more divine control in terms of how scripture was formed, mm-hmm. and that's going to lead them down one road for wrestling with divine violence in the text. And there are other people who are much more willing to say, well, God was involved in the process, but in a much more hands-off way, and that, again, allows other, op- other options to open up. So I do think how you view inspiration and biblical authority um, really does, to a large degree, determine the, the the solutions that you have to work with as you wrestle with this issue. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think for me, that's just from like a, a nerdy perspective, that's I think one of the really interesting uh, sides of this, I guess you could call it a debate, the debate of divine violence is just um, this understanding of scripture, which I also think our understanding of, of God and God's character plays into that. So it's like this, uh, really, it's all kind of intertwined, um, which I guess is what systematic theology is, but it's still, it's just interesting to see how all these kind of things work together to, to shape um, different things. I mean, I think even our experience, like the culture we grow up in, all of these kind of things kind of have a role on how we view God, how we view scripture, and then in, in turn it affects how we look at things like divine violence. Yes, I, no, I would agree with that. I think there. I think you kind of start pulling on this on this one thread, and there are multiple pieces that kind of are at work together. And you have to you have to look at all of those factors as you try to come up with some way of wrestling through these difficulties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, great. So I guess let's uh, go ahead and jump in then, and just so listeners know, we're going to be um, basically talking about an article. Uh, that you put out uh, called Recent Research on Divine Violence in the Old Testament with Special Attention to Christian Theological Perspective. And this was like a super, super helpful article for me. Um, it uh, has like a good overview of, of a whole bunch of different ways that people uh, look at, think about, and approach uh, the, the violent text in Scripture. Um, so I think it's, it's a great resource. So thank you for taking the time to put that together, and I'm excited to, to kind of walk through it with you uh, here this morning. Sounds good. Sweet. So the the first uh, perspective that we're going to look at is just the idea of defending God's violent behavior. So I guess kind of what we see here is this idea that, you know, God is good, and since God is good, therefore anything God does is good. So genocide, um, which I guess maybe I want to define what that means, uh, but genocide must be good. Um, so I guess maybe... It might have been smarter to ask you this first. When it comes to divine violence in the Old Testament, what kind of uh, things are we talking about? And then we'll come back to this. Um, I think I don't want to overlook what we're talking about, just in case people aren't aware of some of the passages. Yeah, so when I think about divine violence, I I think about it, I mean, primarily in a couple ways. One would be... um, Violent acts that God would do sort of unilaterally, like it might be the 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 flood narrative um, in Genesis, or it could be the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God is sort of sending down fire and brimstone from heaven. That there's no soldiers involved, but God simply is doing some act of violence where people are are being killed. Um, and then there's what you might call divinely sanctioned violence, where God um, commands people like the Israelites to wipe out all the Canaanites when they're um, going into the, to the to the promised land. Um, so God would be ordering other people to engage in acts of violence, and sometimes God also participates, but sometimes God is using other agents to to do that work. So those those examples primarily are what I have in mind. Um, I think you could extend it more broadly even to think about passages where. You know, God sends an evil spirit to torment Saul in the book of First Samuel, you know, or God tells Hagar to return to an abusive situation in the book of Genesis. I mean, those would be other aspects of violence as well, but probably the presenting issue in most people's minds is when people are getting killed, and that's maybe where we'll focus more of our conversation today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and I guess some people have, have come to uh, refer to these passages, I think specifically in the book of, of uh, Joshua, as like Canaanite, the Canaanite genocide. Um, and then there's also people who aren't comfortable with that language, so they might 
just say like the like Israel conquest or maybe the slaughtering of the Canaanites, something like that. Uh, but me personally, I think um, genocide seems to be a, a pretty good word. <laughs> I mean, they just kind of happen to be uh, in the land. They happen to be the Canaanites and they were uh, ordered to all be killed. And so that kind of seems like genocide to me. So I'm comfortable with that language. Sure. Sweet. Um, yeah, and actually where I kind of um, first kind of picked up on some of that language too was in reading a, a book by Pete Enns, The Bible Told Me So, and he kind of takes one specific approach to, to the Canaanite genocide, but that's where I first started wrestling uh, with some of these ideas as well. Yeah, I know there's, I mean, there is some debate whether that that particular term is uh, appropriate for what happens in the book of Joshua. I think whether you use that term or you talk about the slaughter of the Canaanites um, or some other kind of word about killing Canaanites, the, it's, the point still seems to be the same, that, that there are lots of people who are who are killed by divine command. And um, again, as I read the text, that would include um, women and children and civilians, and so that's all problematic. And again, there's some debate about that, about who's actually getting killed. But as a, but as I read the text, it seems like that's what how we're to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. A, a complete and total wiping out of including like you know animals, everything, every living creature, everything, um, which is pretty. I mean, that's extremely troubling. And I think also too, these kind of passages not only are they troubling uh, for like Christian readers who maybe at a later age, kind of like myself, uh, stumbled upon these passages. And then we're like, well, you know, what do I do now? Um, but also for, I think, it's a good deterrent for people outside of the Christian faith. It's easy to point to and say, oh, you talk about this guy, Jesus, who loves everybody, but then your God, you know, commands genocide. And so I think um, it, it's a real tough issue for people both inside and outside the faith alike to wrestle I, with. I, I agree. I agree with that. I do think it's a it's a stumbling walk for some people in terms of coming to faith. It becomes a, a target for those who want to discredit Christian faith. It's it's an important issue to wrestle with. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, it's it. I want to acknowledge how how scary it can be to try to wrestle with these things. Um, but also, I think if we don't, if we're not honest about what we find in. Um, our Bible, uh, if we're not honest with what we find in Scripture and uh, the kind of theology that's been, um, you know, put around that, I think that can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think being honest and trying to wrestle with these passages, uh, looking at different research, trying to pray through them, whatever it is that you need to do, I think ultimately could enhance your relationship with God. Um, because, you know, having doubts and, and asking questions and uh, digging deeper, um, I think is a sign that you know, your faith is getting stronger, uh, if that makes sense. So, yeah, no, I think it's important to engage the these issues. Um, they're not going to go away; they're there, <laughs> um, and so we need to find some way to talk about them. And Christians have been doing that for a long time. And there's so there's there's a there's a long tradition of people trying to think through what this what this means. Sure, sure. All right. Well, I think. Um, now, since I kind of jumped the gun before, <laughs> we'll we'll jump into to some of these positions. And so the first one um, that you bring up in your article is this idea of uh, people. One of the approaches is defending God's violent behavior, kind of with the idea that that God is good, and so if God is commanding genocide, then that somehow must also be good. Uh, so can you kind of like elaborate on that position and maybe talk about why it's attractive, and then maybe some of its weaknesses. Sure. So I think people who um, defend God's violent behavior, they're going to 
they often will look at the Bible and they'll they will be they'll work with a big assumption that's often not stated. And that assumption would be that God actually said and did what the Bible claims. So they're going to look at Scripture. If it says God commanded um, Israel to wipe out the Canaanites, then that's what God did. Or if it says that God you know sent this flood that wiped out everyone on the earth except for eight people, then that's what God did. So so they have so they have that particular assumption they're working with. They often also work with the assumption that God is good, and that's a deeply held theological belief. Um, and so somehow now they have to reconcile these two things that God is good and yet God is doing these kinds of, of, of acts. And so they'll, they'll work at finding some way to explain why it was good for God to do the kinds of things that God did. So that's, that's kind of the, the boundaries of the parameters within which they have to have this conversation. Um, and so there's different ways that they go about doing that. Some will you know, say, well, God was, was justified in doing these things because God has the right to give or take life, and these people in the you know in the flood narrative they were wicked, or the Canaanites were wicked, and therefore they they deserve to be um, destroyed. Or they might say there was a you know a greater good that God was trying to accomplish that God wants to preserve Israel's spiritual purity, so it needs to wipe out um, the Canaanites because they would influence the Israelites to to worship other gods, and and God needs to keep Israel pure because Israel is the nation through whom the Messiah is going to come, through whom the world is going to be saved. And what could be a greater good than that? So, mm, so, sure. so, so sometimes God needs to, in essence, do things that are less desirable to to have these these higher ends. Um, and there's other ways that people will sometimes talk about it too. They'll say, well, you know, God has to work with people where they are. And mm-hmm. Israelites weren't ready to hear a, a love your enemies kind of command. <laughs> They're in a world of violence and warfare, and God's got to kind of accommodate to their situation and come down to meet them where they are and to work to work with them where they are and then gen, gen, uh, slowly lead them to higher, pure, more noble nobler truth. So those are, I mean, those are some other ways. There's other ways that people often try to also try to do this, but there's an, it's an attempt to say what God did was okay. God had good reasons for it. And sometimes they may even say, we may not even fully understand it, mm-hmm. but we trust in God's goodness. Therefore, um, we have to agree that these things were good, even if they might look, look bad to us. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess one thing that it kind of like, I guess starts to hinge on is um, this idea that that God is good, and I I would 100% affirm that. I want to affirm that. Um, but there's kind of like this this philosophical question uh, that gets brought up. It's like is is something good because God does it and that makes it good, or is good something that is outside of God um, and God can only do those things that are good? Um, and so it seems like a lot of people trying to um, defend God's violent behavior, uh, not all of them, this is a, a, you know, broad claim, but would, would go for like, no, God is good. So therefore anything God does must be good, even if we don't understand. Yeah, I think that's probably how I would say it too. I think most people just, just have this deep sense that God is good. And so everything that flows out of God's character, every action, every thought, every deed has to also be, be good as well. Um, Mm -hmm. so then the challenge for us is trying to explain how things that might not look good actually are right right which yeah and then i guess that kind of feeds into like uh what you reference is like the the just cause approach and and you mentioned that uh basically that you know god has good reasons for violence uh we might just you know even if we can't see them i guess kind of uh does this just cause approach maybe fit into some of the theology that we might find in like the book of job or maybe the greater good one might fit job better 
I think, I mean, I think in the Old Testament, there's this, um, there is a deep sense of what sometimes is called um, theology of retribution, where, mm, you know, if yeah. someone is is wicked, then they can expect to experience suffering at the hands of God. And if they're righteous, they can expect to experience blessing. And so it sort of is a, it, it taps into the sense of God's justice, that this is the way God um, deals justly with people. Um, in the world, and that that runs through the Old Testament. I mean, Deuteronomy 28 is a whole chapter that talks about, you know, if you obey God, these good things will happen. If you disobey God, these bad things will happen. So I think that kind of approach um, correlates well with that type of theology in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the the idea of retributive justice uh, versus like restorative justice is one that's really interesting to me. Um, especially because I think within the New Testament, especially, we see a lot of restorative justice uh, kind of ideas. And I think even in the book of Job, um, I think one could read Job as a critique of retributive justice because Job didn't do anything wrong and all this bad stuff still happened to him. Right. No, I think it's absolutely true. I think the book of Job is pushing back against that theology and says, it's just, life's not that simple. It doesn't always work out that way. I mean, sometimes you've got someone who is squeaky clean like Job. I mean, he doesn't get much better than Job. Mm-hmm. And all these terrible things happen. Um, there must be other reasons to explain why they happen. So you, so I do think there's a conversation that's been canonized in the pages of the Old Testament where there are different views about um, why things happen and what degree God is involved in those things, um, and that not all suffering is a result of, of sinning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, maybe an important thing to, to pick up on what you just said there is um, kind of this idea, this goes back to our understanding of Scripture, um, but would you hold to like uh, more like a, a multi-vocality perspective of Scripture where it's um, did multiple voices are speaking uh, kind of within... Um, debate or tension of one another wrestling with similar questions. Would that be a fair way to, to say that? I think that's a good way to say it. Yeah, I do think, I do think again, the, the scriptures, they, they canonize this conversation on this and a, and a whole host of issues. Um, and I think that's part of, again, how people view scripture. It's part of what the, our job as readers of scripture is, is to enter into that conversation and to kind of carry it forward. Um, it's not as though all the answers are there, but the but some of the parameters of the conversation are there, and we can pick up on those threads, and we can enter into that dialogue as well as we discern what it means for us in Christian community today. Yeah, it, it seems like it almost kind of gets into this idea. Uh, I know Pete Enns likes to talk about this a lot, of like Scripture um, being more so uh, created to give us wisdom rather than just straight answers all the time if we're willing to enter into the conversation and the struggle with the biblical text, with the authors. And kind of wrestle with things that way. I think that's um, helpful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so then another uh, thing that people often say, and it's, it's closely tied to the just cause approach, is this idea of the greater good. Um, you know that that's you know somehow the greater good is happening here. And I know this doesn't connect a hundred percent fully because it's not. Uh, this isn't necessarily um, God commanding this kind of violence to happen, but this just I kind of gets more so into the problem of evil. Uh, but when I hear about people talk about the greater good, the first thing my mind jumps to is the Holocaust. Um, and I'm not, you know, willing to say that the, the greater, that the, the Holocaust somehow brought a greater good, especially not when I put myself in the shoes of uh, the people, the, the Jews that were killed, the, the people that were killed during the Holocaust. Um, I can't seem to think that that was the, 
greatest good for them. <laughs> so that's, I struggle with the the greater good argument a lot. Yeah, well, I think I think the weakness of that argument is that it, it in a sense you say the the means justify the ends, mm-hmm. and I I think that can that can allow you to do all sorts of things that we would say are unethical and immoral. So I I get really nervous about that approach as well. Yeah, that that's a one that's um, definitely really dicey for me, but. Uh, one one approach in this camp of defending God's violent behavior that I actually think um, is perhaps the strongest out of the arguments there is this idea of progressive revelation. Um, and actually, I know uh, there's a, a guy uh, called William Webb or, or Bill Webb um, who's done a whole bunch of work on this. He wrote a book, uh, was it Slaves, Women, and Homosexuality, something like that. But then he also recently put out a book called Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric. Um, And in that book, he makes a very strong case for this idea of progressive revelation, um, which if I had to pick one of these that was my favorite or I think is the strongest, um, it's definitely this idea of progressive revelation. Can you just explain uh, for our listeners what what that means? Right. Progressive revelation is the idea um, that God doesn't sort of dump the whole load on people at once. So again, God kind of comes to where people are and starts with what they can understand. I, I sometimes describe it as, it's like before I could teach someone calculus, if I even had that ability, <laughs> I would first need to teach them like 2 plus 2 equals 4. you got to teach them to add and subtract before you can teach them higher mathematics. So in the same way, before you can teach people higher morals and ethics, you, you really have to just start where they are. And so that means sometimes God has to really accommodate to people's level of um, ethics, morality, and knowledge, and maybe even sometimes work in ways that God would prefer not to have to work in, but that's the that's the only way to get people where you want them to go. And so over time, little by little, God gradually reveals more and more and more of God's truth and God's will and God's ways and until we get to, you know, the full revelation that we see in Jesus. Um, so in that sense, I do think, I mean, I think most Christians would affirm that we see more of God in Jesus mm-hmm. than what we knew before Jesus came. I think that the difficulty with progressive revelation, sometimes the way it's talked about, is, is this, in, this incremental um, um, giving of more and more knowledge. It's hard to sometimes plot that out through the pages of the Old Testament, especially sure. if you try to date te- text and then line text up and say, okay, is there more revelation here than there was here? It just doesn't always seem like it lines up quite that neatly. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's – yeah, I would agree that, that that's a, a big weakness there. Um, but it does, I think maybe I like the perspective if I had to choose one just because, I mean, it sounds nice. It, it seems like, um, something that works. And I think maybe more so though, somebody who, um, probably starts with this idea of progressive revelation, but then, um, kind of morphs it and makes it their own. Um, and I, if, unless I totally misunderstand them, I think is Greg Boyd, um, in some of his work, like crucifixion of the warrior God and cross vision, um, but that's more so that's more so accommodation, I guess. But that fits progressive religion. I don't know. Um, that's just thoughts in Josh's head that <laughs> people aren't going to be able to track with if they don't know what I'm talking about. Well, I do wonder on that point, sometimes if it's if it might be better to think about rather than progressive revelation, progressive understanding. There we that go. It's, okay. That it's in a sense, God has always been calling people to love their enemies. God has always been calling people to do justice, and people have just taken a while to 
fully tune into that. Okay. It's not as though God at one point said, yeah, it's okay to kill people, but oh, now it's not okay to kill people. No, God has always been saying, no, my my plan is that you res- you respect and love all people, but it just takes a while for us to, to kind of gain that understanding throughout time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really helpful. I like that um, for sure. And then, so I guess too, something that comes uh, also out of, I think uh, they he did a lot of uh, work on him in Bloody Brutal and Barbaric. The idea that like oh God's violence isn't as bad as it seems. Um, that I was frustrated because reading his book, he spent like a hundred and fifty pages on this idea of hyperbole. Um, when I was like, okay, I get it. But what like can we get a little bit of background on that? Yeah, I should say that I, I haven't read um, William Webb's new book yet. I, I okay. am going to be reviewing it, so I'll, I'll look oh, forward sweet. to getting a chance to, to yeah, dig yeah, into yeah. that one. But I, but I haven't seen it seen it yet. But I do know, I mean, a number of writers will talk about, um, particularly with like the whole slaughter of the Canaanites, they'll say uh, the language that's being used there is again, it's, it's hyperbolic, it's exaggeration, it's the kind of it's the kind of bravado that you use in ancient Near Eastern war texts about really killing everybody when actually you're not really killing everybody. And mm-hmm. again, I, I'm not. I'm not completely sure how helpful that argument is. I mean, it's fine to talk about that, and that certainly there may be some of that there. We we do have different traditions in the in the Old Testament, even about how Israel conquers a land. Even within the Book of Joshua, there are yeah. clearly indications that Canaanites are still around. So there are different stories that that sort of are in tension with each other. Still, at the end of the day, you've got people that are said to be killed by divine command, and I think that for mm. me back to the heart of the issue. What are we going to do with that? Is that, in fact, what God does? And if that's what God does, and what does that imply about what God's like? And if that's not what God does, then how do we understand biblical inspiration and authority and those kind of questions and what other paths open up to us? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. That's my biggest critique is like, okay, even if you can say that, you know, the things that um, it seems like God commanded in Scripture didn't happen to the extent that um, it might say they did, the, the problem is still there. God is still commanding uh, the killing of, of, of people. And even if God, you know, commanded uh, the killing of just one person, uh, I still think there's some, um, you know, ethical dilemmas that, that happen there. Uh, but also, too, I, it might fit into this kind of category of not as bad as it seems. But some people also like to kind of point out how within uh, comparatively to other ancient Near Eastern uh, tribes and people groups, the violence committed um, by people by Israel basically was much tamer. Um, so maybe that actually fits more in, in the idea of progressive revelation or, or whatever. Um, but that's another interesting argument I think people try to make that comparatively to what other people were doing, Israel looks you know docile. Yeah, again, it's just, I mean, it may be by degree people make those arguments. I, I There's no way, there's just no way to get around the fact that these texts still relay an enormous amount of, enormous amount of violence, a particular enormous amount of violence that's attributed to God. So the mm-hmm. problem, I think, is still, is just still remains there. Yeah, oh, most definitely, most definitely. Um, and then I guess just the last thing here is is people will sometimes say, all right, well, I'm going to trust get that God is good, even though I don't understand everything that's happening. Um, so it's kind of like, I guess, an appeal to mystery is a way that people might go. Right. Um, and for some folks, again, it's this strong conviction that, that God is morally perfect and whatever God does is right. 
so they're so there's they are so absolutely convinced of that um and they realize that god is god and they're not god that they're that we we as humans are finite and we're limited and so we don't see the whole grand picture we can't see all the pieces and so we just have to trust that what god did was right and good and e- even if it doesn't make sense to us i think again it's rooted deeply back in in in, in who god is and, and god's character yeah absolutely and so those uh, kind of things that we, we mentioned there briefly all are kind of ways that people were, would defend divine violence. And before we kind of move into the uh, next section here, um, and we did reference some of these, so we don't have to spend a lot of time here, but what are some of the, the dangers that you see um, in taking this perspective of defending divine violence? I think, again, the danger in doing that is that it leaves you with a God who uh, is a is a purveyor of violence and that can be very difficult again for some people to believe in or worship such a god particularly in a world that we live in with with so much violence that happens to think that god somehow is behind the pain and suffering and cruelty that that people experience so it creates a very difficult image of god to to come to terms with and it seems to stand at odds with um the views of god we have elsewhere in in scripture where um we see again the God that Jesus reveals to be a God who, uh, Scripture says, kind to the wicked, um, mm-hmm. a God who commands us to love others, and so on. So that 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 tension that's really difficult to to come to terms with. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so then uh, another uh, way, I guess, people to shift out of the defending defined violence. Um, there's a next group of people, um, and this is a, a much um, shorter conversation, but people will try to balance God's violent behavior. Uh, with some of the other behavior they see uh, God carrying out, kind of like this idea, um, in my mind, is like a yin-yang, right? Like, oh, well, you're only focusing on violence. That doesn't really tell the whole story. God also does all this good stuff, too. Right. So I think people think you can kind of mitigate the problem of divine violence by saying, well, yeah, there's these difficult passages here, but there's also all these other good, really good ones, you know, right alongside of it. And that somehow balances the two out or, or neutralizes the difficult ones. I mean, on the one hand, I'd say, hey, it's great to talk about those positive images of God in the Old Testament. In fact, we probably ought to do more of that because so many people have such a um, – a negative view of God from the Old Testament, and even having a conversation like this, we're kind of focusing on a very select um, set of texts, which I think is really important. But clearly, it's not the whole picture. There are lots of other images of God, and so it's good to remind people that, yes, there are beautiful, tender, gracious, loving, giving images of God in the Old Testament. However, I still don't think that simply emphasizing those somehow makes the other more difficult ones go away or somehow erases a problem. I, I just don't think that's a, ultimately a solution. Sure. Also, I think too, and I don't know if this would be a fair critique, but it, it seems like then by doing that, you're also kind of pitting God against God's self. It seems like almost bad Trinitarian theology that God um, sometimes can, you know, act, you know, violently and, and contribute to evil or things like that. And then other times, you know, God is this, this loving, beautiful being, which, um, it's like almost as like God bipolar. Like, <laughs> what's going on with that? It's it's really. I think it's really hard to have a consistent view of God if you say that all of these images reflect what God is actually like. Mm-hmm. And that's. I mean, some people they do. They'll, they'll try to bring all these images together and say all of these images reflect truth about about God. And I just, I just find it to be in, inconsistent and ultimately incoherent. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or certainly someone who wouldn't be very trustworthy because you'd never quite know like which way is God going to be? Is this a good God day or is this a bad God day? Is it nasty God or nice God? And that's that's really hard to stake your soul on um, a deity who would be like that. Yeah, and I'm just this is a thought that literally just came to me now. So um, hopefully it's it's meaningful. But do you think almost like uh, like this tendency that we that we have in especially in Western Christianity to like over uh, personify God? Uh, it seems like that kind of plays into this. Like if you had a um, different understanding that God isn't some you know guy up in the sky with a beard and like throwing lightning bolts. This definitely doesn't seem to fit because it wouldn't be consistent. Does that make sense? I think it does. I mean, yeah. For me, again, I like. I want to say that when I think about God, I think God is essentially fundamentally defined by love, and so uh-huh. everything else I understand about God is going to flow out of that that core core conviction. Um, it's God is not simply a greater version of of us, so to right. speak, because we right. are certainly a mixture of good, bad, and everything in between. <laughs> sure. God is a wholly different kind of being and one that again is found fundamentally God, God who's loving. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's, I mean, that's a huge conviction for me that, that, you know, God in it's his very essence and the, you know, genetic makeup, however you want to talk about it is love. Um, and we've done a whole bunch of stuff, uh, talking about that with some interesting theologians who, you know, carry out some of the consequences, you know, of, of that idea, especially when it comes to the problem of evil. Um, but that's, Another story for another day. So I guess uh, where then a shift happens uh, after you know the trying to balance God's violent behavior with his other behavior is we start getting into a realm that um, some people, depending on their view of Scripture and what Scripture is, uh, might get a little bit uncomfortable with, and that's this idea of critiquing God's violent behavior. Um, so I guess a lot of like modern biblical criticism would kind of fit into to this perspective. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And part of what would lead people there is they would want to take into account things like, well, let's let's consider the um, the, the theological worldview of ancient Israel. Let's think about the cultural historical context out of which these texts were written. Let's think about how ancient historiography was produced. Um, let's look at the formation and production of these texts and the environment out of which they came. And I think for many people, when they do that, um, they're willing to say, well, you know, in some ways, Israel talks about God in ways that are quite similar to how other people talk about God. So, like in that time period, everyone would have thought about God or the gods being involved in war in some way. So it makes sense that Israel would have thought the same way. Um, that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that's what God actually did or what God is actually like. It simply is reflective of how people thought about the divine at that particular point in, in history. Um, so that that does influence then people's willingness to say, well, maybe this is more of a culturally conditioned understanding of God, not one that reflects um, ultimate reality. And so then if you can open that door, then there's some room for some critique or at least some distinctions to be made between like this may be, you know, to use Terence Fredheim's language, this may be a, you know, what the textual God looks like, but the actual God over here may look somewhat different. And we have to mm. do some work to try to figure out the, how those two may correspond or correlate to each other. Sure. Yeah, I think um, maybe something that, that comes into play here is uh, this understanding uh, for some that, um, you know, scripture as a divinely inspired book, 
Uh, some people use the the metaphor of it similar to Jesus, how Jesus was 100% human, 100% God. And then they'll kind of apply that to the inspiration of Scripture and say that, okay, so there are some genuine human elements here, um, and people, uh, you know, can mess up sometimes. Um, do you think that that kind of plays into this approach of, of critiquing God's violent behavior as well? I think some people certainly would talk about the Bible that way as having, you know, both human and divine aspects aspects to it. Um, and that might free some people to be able to critique the more human parts of it. Okay. Um, I think for many readers, uh, though, they still want to see inspiration as somehow God has governed the whole process. And so yeah. however it came about, the end result is still kind of God is the sole, sole author, and we can sort of trust as true everything that's there. Um, I think people who take this approach to, to critique are going to say, well, yes, God was involved in the process, but not in a heavy-handed way. God's not a like an over-involved editor who micromanages the process. God lets, I mean, I think Peter Enns talks about this, you know, God lets people um, tell stories their own way. And so, mm. you know, God is willing to work through fallible human beings. And if they're talking about God in ways that make sense in their cultural context, but don't get God quite right, God doesn't feel the need to necessarily fix that. God simply sure. lets that stand in the text. And so again, as readers who come to the text, interested to know, does this show me what God is like? We have some work to do to, to discern, is this an accurate reflection of God, or is this more of a cultural expression of what how people thought about God at the time? Mm-hmm. So, which, that's kind of the idea of one of the, the perspectives you, you talk about is like a reader-response approach, that we as readers uh, have a responsibility and are accountable for how we would we would read scripture i think that's crucial i think uh, we we go beyond simply analyzing what's there to actually say okay now that i know what's there how do i evaluate that is this truth with a capital t or is this um, a product of culture history um worldviews that maybe i have good reason and on good principles would would beg to differ from Mm -hmm. so Within this perspective, I guess then, um, if you have this responsibility, where where do things like experience and reason, you know, think like Wesleyan quadrilateral, um, where do those things start to kind of come into play here? Because I think that's key. If you're going to have a responsibility of how you read scripture, then things like experience and your relationship with God are all going to affect um, that response. Is that... That's no, I think that's true. Um, I guess for me, the the critique that often comes up with this approach is that people simply are picking and choosing, mm-hmm. like which views of God they like. So, like, well, this is a nice view of God, so that's I'm going to say that's what God is really like. But this is a nasty view of God, so I'm going to say God's not like that. And so we don't want to simply cherry pick. We don't want to make a God in our own image because that doesn't really help us. And so you have to find some principled place to stand to make those determinations. And so you know, one of the one of the views uh, here talks about sort of using Jesus, um, mm-hmm. kind of a Christocentric approach, mm-hmm. um, to, to make the claim that Jesus is the fullest and clearest, most complete revelation of God. And so we look at the God Jesus reveals and use that as sort of a litmus test or a standard to measure other literary portrayals of God. And if they match up with the God Jesus reveals, then we say, great, this shows what God is like. And if they don't, then we could conclude this must be a culturally historical understanding of what what people thought about God in ancient times. Sure, which just to be completely honest and fair, that's actually my preferred uh, approach to things is the the Christocentric approach. Um, 
I mean, I, I harp on this frequently. You know, I, I teach my students um, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look at the person of Jesus, right? It's his, you know, um, it, Jesus is like the, the ultimate revelation. It's the exact imprint of God uh, or, or like all those kind of things. And so then exactly like you said, when I go back into the Old Testament and I, I see God behaving in ways that don't look like Christ, um, I'm then comfortable saying things that someone who, you know, might say that God, the Bible doesn't always get God right, um, I'd be like, yeah, this is a, a a place where the Bible doesn't necessarily get God right um, compared to what we have in the revelation of Jesus. And then I'm not comfortable then taking, you know, Jesus and trying to balance him with a bit of Moses or a bit of Joshua or something like that. Because uh, in my understanding of scripture, that's not how the Bible talks about itself, um, but that, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation. No, I, I think that's helpful because it gives you a it gives you a place to stand. I mean, you're again you're standing with Jesus, trying to use that as your guide to think about these other portrayals, and you're and you're recognizing that the Bible's not a flat book; that mm-hmm. there are higher points of revelation at various points in the Bible, and you're you're focusing on that. And I think that kind of keeps you from the charge. Then again, of just picking and choosing because you have a, a principled approach to the to the question. Yeah. I... And I think just to be fair to people who might um, push back on this, because I, I have some buddies um, that are like hardcore in the Reformed uh, camp and view of things, and they would tell me like, oh, no, it's not that we have a flat reading. It's like if God breathed this whole book, then all of it is equal authoritative. You can't say like, you know, if, if God inspired the exact words of Moses, then you can't challenge them against Jesus. That's pitting God against himself. That's a common critique that people take. I don't like it, <laughs> but I think that's a common a common critique that people make of that perspective. Yeah, and I think, again, it, it just comes back to questions of how you understand inspiration. What does that mm-hmm. mean to say God inspired scripture or to say that God breathed it all? Does that mean, therefore, that we have to take it all literally as absolute truth or are there other ways to understand inspiration that can, can make space for um, privileging Jesus in our interpretation of scripture? Yeah, absolutely. And then, with that idea of inspiration, somebody um, that I really like, and I've mentioned him a couple times, is Greg Boyd. Uh, Greg Boyd um, that takes a very like Anabaptist approach to things. Um, I mentioned his understanding of, of divine violence, but he has recently taken that. So he takes it a step further than Jesus and talks about what he calls cruciform um, hermeneutic, where he reads everything still through Christ, but specifically through Christ on the cross. Um, and so he recently put out a book um, that I'm reading right now where he's taken this cruciform inspiration and applying it to scripture. Um, and it's, I really like it. <laughs> it's kind of helpful. It's, it's to use language that you said earlier, it's kind of giving me more ground to stand on uh, rather than just saying some parts of the Bible get God wrong. I can say, well, according to the revelation of, of God through the person of Christ on the cross, we can see this is how God always acts. Therefore, you know, so it's padding, I guess, <laughs> perspectives I already like. Well, it's interesting, too, that, I mean, I mean Great Boy came out with I mean, this ma- massive two-volume work on, on the question of divine violence, and then a, a shorter version of that, you know, Cross Vision, and now sort of followed that up with a book that you just mentioned on inspiration. So, again, I, I think that just reaffirms what we've been saying, how, like, these, these questions about inspiration are closely tied to, mm-hmm. I think, questions of divine violence and how all that works together. They seem to be... Um, again, sort of uh, important to think about all of that together in one piece. Yeah, which I think makes it too. It it becomes um, 
sometimes it can become difficult to have, you know, meaningful conversations around this topic because of that. Because once you, not everybody is starting at the same place uh, theologically about a wide variety of things. And so to come to um, this idea of divine violence and assume that everybody is coming from the same perspective is just not accurate. And so I think that's one thing that this article that you wrote really uh, kind of helped me see and reinforced was, wow, people are coming from all over the place, and it's given me um, uh, humility, hopefully, uh, but also an appreciation and an understanding um, that people with differing perspectives here, um, they can hold them for some, uh, even if I disagree, with for some good reasons. It's not completely outlandish. Um, even though if I disagree with them. So I think that's a real strength of, of this article that, that you put out. Well, even with, um, like with Greg Boyd's work, what's interesting to me, what I really appreciate, appreciate about his work is that he, he comes to the conclusion that God, is, in fact, is not violent. Mm-hmm. And he'll, he'll mm-hmm. argue, that, again, these texts in the Old Testament that portray God that way are not showing us um, what God is actually like. Yet his view of inspiration would be different from mine. So we kind of we come to the, we get to the same conclusion, but we kind of go there different routes. So there again, there's these multiple layers into this conversation: how you enter it and where you kind of come out, and and how you end up. Yeah, it's really interesting, and we'll move off of this because we have a few more things to talk about. But what I like about what Boyd is doing is he um, is coming at things in a way that holds definitely a more conservative approach uh, to scripture than I um, often would. But what I like about that is he's kind of building a bridge um, between more, you know, conservative and progressive or whatever you want to call it. I don't like those labels because of how much baggage there is, but um, it's kind of building a bridge between those camps and, and showing how um, there's more in conversation there than maybe we, we thought at first. So I think that's helpful. Um, so uh, to move on, though, a really interesting uh, perspective that you talked about. Uh, in your article is this idea of a feminist approach to scripture, um, which I know people get freaked out as soon as, you know, some people get freaked out if you throw the word feminism around uh, for various reasons. Uh, But this one's super interesting to me because it it at least seems that, um, in my understanding throughout scripture, women get a lot of, uh, take a lot of the brunt of some of this, this violence. I mean, with things like war rape and, you know, being able to just uh, take women, uh, you know, see a beautiful woman that you like, take her after you've wiped out, you know, the armies and make her her your wife. Sure. Maybe you can let her mourn for a month and let her get over it, but then, you know, go from there. So I think this is a really interesting approach for sure. That has, you know, lots of helpful, um, consequences. Yeah, I think I think for me again, I mean, partic- it's always disturbing to have texts that portray violence against women. It, women, it's especially or exceedingly disturbing when God is sort of seen as the the perpetrator behind that. Oh, sure. And, and part part of that again is just that texts like the, those seem to um, give justification for um, men who want to abuse and do violence against women today. So it's that it's that contemporary connection that really mm-hmm. really troubles me. Um, as well. So I, I do think that um, feminist scholars have done some really important work here in, in raising that to the surface and, and sort of exposing those texts for what they are and, and sort of forcing us to think through how, we're, how we want to talk about those texts, how we use those texts. I mean, I think the texts can be used to have important conversations about 
about issues like rape and sexual harassment and sexual violence, um, but they have to be framed really carefully um, not to, again, in any way suggest that um, these behaviors are somehow okay because the Bible sometimes puts God as the subject of some of those kinds of um, some of those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Which I mean, just again for a practical modern day example, we recently did a did a podcast with uh, Ruth Everhart. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but she wrote a book back in 2017 called Ruined, um, where it's a spiritual memoir where she talks about um, how she was uh, raped at gunpoint, um, her and her roommates in college, um, and how that kind of really messed her up because she thought now she was ruined, she couldn't be a good wife, you know, God didn't love her anymore, all these kind of things. And then we interviewed her, she just put out a book called The Me Too Reckoning, um, and it's about uh, facing the church's uh, complicity in sexual abuse and violence. And so why I think, and you alluded to this and pointed to this, but why I think some of these kind of feminist critiques are so important is because we don't, I don't want to support any of those kind of things. I don't want to justify um, sexual harassment or rape or any of those kind of things. And I definitely don't want God uh, on the hook for justifying those things as well. That's extremely uh, troubling to me. Right. And also, uh, just to show um, some bias that I would have as well, I uh, come from an ega- I have an egalitarian perspective when it comes to women in ministry. Um, the church I work at right now, the executive pastor, uh, Jeanette, she's a woman. <laughs> she's awesome. And so uh, a lot of things talking to her and, and some other people I've worked with and, you know, the idea of patriarchy um, and how patriarchy can still rear its head, you know, in some ugly ways in the church and justify poor treatment of women. Um, it's all just a big, ugly, tangled mess that I don't want to have to put God on the hook for. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge problem. And it just is it's just complicated exponentially when you have sacred text that sort of encode uh, patriarchy in them. It just is very, very difficult to, again, to, to disentangle all of that um, in, in contemporary life and, and relationships. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so uh, just to, to keep the pace going, I know we're kind of having a marathon uh, approach to things today, so <laughs> thank you, Eric, for being uh, oh, sure. so cool about it. Um, the, the next one you kind of talk about is accepting and rejecting God's violent behavior, uh, which you reference uh, Terrence Fretheim there, who kind of tries to chart like some kind of middle path. Uh, between the two. So can you describe that a little bit for us? So, right, Terence Fredheim, as I mentioned earlier, he uses this image of um, kind of distinguishing distinguishing between a, the textual God and the actual God, so the God that mm-hmm. we read in the page of the Bible versus the God who actually is the living you know, God. And certainly there are points of correlation, but there are also points of dissonance between those. And so as I, if I'm reading Fredheim correctly, I mean, he, he would allow God to be involved in certain acts of violence. He would not, he would not say the same thing as folks who say use the Christocentric approach and who would rule out all divine violence. He would, I think, say yes, in fact, God is involved in certain ways in the violence of the world. Um, But he would also say, but not every biblical text that portrays God engaging in violence is necessarily something that God actually did. Okay. So he's going to make some. He's going to try to make some distinctions there. He's not ruling violence out, kind of a priori, but he is saying that um, not, not everything you read in the Old Testament you should take as at face value that God actually did this this violent act. Okay. Yeah. And and you talk about kind of, or you you show um, a quote from him um, where it says, you know, God chooses to become involved in violence in order to bring about good purposes. 
you know, the means by which God's people are delivered from violence is by God kind of stepping into um, violence, meeting people out where they're at. Uh, but I guess where I might take some issue with that is when, um, for me, if we say that violence is going to solve violence, that I think just perpetuates this cycle that if you look at history and our world today is just definitely not true, <laughs> at least from what we can understand. Uh, violence just seems to cause more violence. And I think more often than not, when we put, when we say things like, um, you know, violence, you know, can end violence or violence can bring peace, then what we're doing is we're continuing to reinforce our faith in the use of violence. Um, and that's really troubling for me. And I think that's spot on. I, th- I do think that's the problem. That somehow we have this, I mean, Walter Wing talks about this, this sort of assumption that this one great act of violence is going to finally either end violence or stop violence, and yet it just it just perpetuates the cycle of violence. So, I mean, God is, I see God is infinitely creative and resourceful and able to work in so many other ways um, to bring an end to violence, but not but not simply by adding fuel to the fire by more violence. Right. Yeah, that, man, and that, that gets just so messy, too, because when I think about that, it gets into really difficult conversations that people are having nowadays, like, oh, should we have armed security guards in churches? Uh, I mean, personally, if you want my opinion, I would say no, but people are actually genuinely wrestling with this kind of stuff, and I think these understandings of violence um, plays into these kind of conversations uh, full force. Right. I know this is a quick aside, but I mean, it's sort of a different conversation, but I do think that we often work with the assumption that in situations like that, there's only two options. You either do nothing and disaster happens, or you use violence and that successfully stops the problem. And I just, I would argue that there are so many other options between those two, creative, nonviolent solutions and strategies, but we often don't hear about those. We're not taught about those in school, um, but those can be really helpful, and there's lots of real stories about that. But again, that's sort of another conversation (laughs) for another time. Yeah, another time would be good. Uh, I think that's a super important conversation as well. All right, uh, so moving on then, uh, we have uh, next this kind of idea of reinterpreting God's violent behavior symbolically. Um, which I know you cite here some uh, more um, modern theologians, but also is this kind of uh, the perspective that some of like the early church fathers would would take, like some more allegorical readings of scripture? That's right. Yeah. So it would be it would it would be similar in some ways to that um, way of reading scripture. So for like the first uh, thousand years of the church, I think part of the reason the Old Testament survived was because you had someone like Origen and others who basically allegorized these violent texts, and they said the real meaning here is not the violence. There's a deeper symbolic meaning that you have to get at um, that allowed the text uh, to sort of sur- to to survive. And so you have some modern scholars um, who are. I'm not arguing for exactly the same approach, but they are saying that the real meaning of a text like Joshua 6 through 11 is more symbolic or metaphorical. It's about themes like obedience and themes like faithfulness. That's what the texts are trying to communicate. They're not really about God calling Israelites to do bad things to Canaanites. So you need to read it at that level to get the, the true meaning of the text. Okay, so this kind of would get into the idea of... Um where people would talk about like biblical myth or like, so it's not that the story's um, false or completely made up, uh, but you know, it's more so trying to teach you some kind of, uh, you know, moral examples or, or theological perspectives um, that, you know, they take history as a base and then kind of, you know, tweak it a little bit or, or those kind of things. Is that, is that right? Or they would just sort of use it maybe as a, 
as a vessel or as a container, as it were, to kind of communicate kind of truth. Okay. Like I think it's I think Douglas Earl. If I'm remembering this right, he uses this analogy like of the Titanic, and he okay. talks about the movie, actually, okay. the movie that was made. He said, well, the movie's really not about the Titanic. The movie's about this love story that kind of takes place on the ship. I mean, that's what the story, the, the movie version of the story is about. And the, okay. the whole thing with the Titanic is just kind of the, it's the the framework in which it allows that story to be delivered. And I think he would say, in a sense, you know, the conquest narrative is the framework around which the writers can deliver messages of, again, obedience and faithfulness mm. and so on. Okay, but it's not I really see. about that framework. It's just a, it's about this message that comes through it. Okay. Yeah, I see. That makes a lot of sense. Because then, it, kind of, that would help. Um, that would help with with this idea that you know the Bible is being written in an ancient Near Eastern context, um, and so God's using that context to kind of tell God's story and and bring about God's purposes. Okay. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. That's a really helpful metaphor. Um, sweet. All right. Well, uh, to move on again, <laughs> the next one would be uh, protesting God's violent behavior. Uh, which is kind of just the idea that, like, yeah, God does violent stuff. Um, we're not super happy about it, uh, but it's there. Is that kind of a really dumbed-down way, way to no, say it? No, that's, that's the essence of it. I think this particular approach is going to say, hey, I'm going to take the Bible really seriously. I'm going to read what it says. Um, I'm going to see that sometimes God behaves nicely, and sometimes God behaves um, in ways that are violent and harmful and and in ways that I would consider bad, but that's just that's just the way God is. So these mm-hmm. are folks who are, are going to sort of let go a little bit of that core conviction that God is solely, exclusively good. Okay. And they're going to say, yeah, God is good, but God's also bad sometimes. Um, God is nice, and God is also nasty. That's just the way God is. And you might not like it, but you know, deal with it. And you, know, you can push back against it. You can protest. You can tell God you don't think God's doing a very good job. You think God should behave differently but that's just the god with whom we have to do so they're Mm, some of these folks are trying to take a really i guess you might say honest look at the text and and just say this 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 is the kind of the messy god that is and we have to sort of embrace uh, we have to at least um acknowledge that we don't have to embrace it we can again push back against it but if we're going to be faithful to the text that's that's what the text is telling us so in this approach would a, a perspective on scripture be very much just like a um I don't want to say surface level because that sounds uh, condescending, but like a very like face of the text. I'm just reading the the scripture. It seems when I read the scripture, God sometimes is good. Sometimes he's bad. Sometimes he does moral things. Sometimes he does immoral things. And so I just kind of have to wrestle with that just based yeah. off like a, a, I guess like a plain reading of scripture. I think that's true. Again, and trying to not bring a preconception. I, I think God okay. is like this and okay. therefore now I've got to fit all of scripture into this mold of what I think God is like. Whereas these folks I think would claim to say, no, I'm just going to, I'm reading the Bible to figure out what God is like. And I see this mixture. And I just have to, I have to acknowledge that and somehow deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And man, in, in this um, section here that you wrote about, you uh, brought up the idea of uh, theodicy, like the, the problem of evil and stuff. And um, if you don't mind, I want to read a quote that uh, you quoted here. Um, oh my goodness, I'm going to mess up the person's last name. Uh, Penchansky, maybe? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. So, Penchansky, here you're talking about the question of theodicy looms large in any discussion of God's behavior in the Old Testament, and Penchansky believes some of these troubling texts can help us make sense of evil, pain, and suffering in the world. And he writes... 
The theological claim of a monster god addresses the question of theodicy. How can there be evil and suffering in the world? Answer, because God causes it. God is not reliably good or benevolent in any human sense of the word. This provides an explanation for individual suffering in the world. I suggest that at many times it is described to have a, a God who is in control of everything, even if that necessitates a God who is not entirely trustworthy. Uh, while this does not answer certain questions of theodicy, the answer provided is unlikely to be very satisfying for many believers, um, which definitely is not satisfying to me. Um, but I think what's interesting about this is uh, I have an uncle um, or an uncle-in-law but that doesn't make sense. Uh, married into the fam, I married into you know my wife's uncle, um, and he is not a Christian, uh, but he is a theist. Uh, he actually, I think, would describe himself as like a Zoroastrianist. Um, so he has this idea of good and evil. Um, but he actually takes this approach. He this is where he comes from. He would say, well, if I were to be a Christian, I would have to say that God is not good or benevolent, and I don't want to say that. Um, and so I think that's just a really interesting outside perspective um, to to kind of go with this. Yeah, maybe and maybe a maybe a counter to this approach. And I think you've had him on your podcast perhaps already. Tom Ord's approach, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, where he would say God can't. It's a very different type of view as opposed to God being in control of everything. Um, you know, his view saying that there are there are limits. God can't unilaterally prevent evil. I mean, God can mm-hmm. work with human agents and can sometimes do that, but God can't unilaterally do that. So there would be, again, different theological traditions that wrestle with that really, really hard question about yeah. the problem of evil in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, or Tom Ward is a, a friend of the show. Um, he's a super nice guy. I've, you know, met him in person. We've had many conversations and he's he's been on multiple times and I have some hangups with some of the God can't stuff, but I always, I tell Tom this room, like, Tom, if you're right, I'm not going to be mad. <laughs> like, like uh, I, I will put a, a hope in a, in a God of love. Um, so Tom, Tom's awesome. And, and so listeners, if you're interested uh, in what Eric just brought up, this idea that God can't do some things and that uh, sounds alarming, um, which I'm sure it does, uh, go back uh, and, and go through our archives. You'll see, uh, it shouldn't be too far back, but we, we do have some episodes with, with uh, Tom where he uh, graciously lays out that perspective for us. And so the the last uh, thing that you put here, which is one that I just think is um, completely, if I can be super blunt, just completely just outlandish. I My least favorite like <laughs> of all the perspectives is this idea of celebrating God's violent behavior, um, which me being nonviolent, it's probably pretty obvious why I wouldn't want to, to do that. But can we, I guess, just talk a little bit about that, uh, to be fair, to be fair to the perspective. Sure. Yeah. I, and maybe, I mean, maybe celebrating is too hard of a, of a word, but I, I do think there's a sense in which some people would say that's a fair way to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the idea that, you know, and some people take comfort in this, that God is a defender, protector, right. um, refuge, that God can use violence to to keep me safe. And so some people would find that helpful. Um, uh, to be more nuanced, I mean, other people would argue that, in fact, the whole reason that Christian ethics say that we are called to not be violent toward others is because that's God's domain, that mm. God is the one mm-hmm. who's going to settle scores. God's the one who's going to make things right. Um, we don't have to be violent because God is going to do that justice and judgment on others our call is to love and sort of let the let the chips fall where they where they may and let god sort of sort things out in the end so in mm-hmm. that sense people can 
can celebrate the fact that God is going to do those things, then that relieves me from the pressure of having to take revenge or to get back at people because I just leave all that in God's hands. I think yeah. that's the best reading of that approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think so too. And that, um, I mean, that really makes sense. And I know I was like uh, poking fun, but I can have, I have a lot of empathy for that kind of understanding, especially if I think about um, some oppressed people groups. Um, I mean, if I was an oppressed people group, uh, you know, sold into slavery and, and being treated just awfully, I would take a lot of comfort in knowing that, hey, this bad, evil stuff that's happening to me, like God is going to take care of these people one day. Um, you know, God stands with the oppressed, all that, all that kind of stuff. I think you see a lot of this in like liberation theology, um, which I think there's a lot of good stuff in liberation theology. Um, so I definitely uh, empathize uh, there with that approach. Um I was more so poking fun at the idea of celebrating, like, yeah, God did cool stuff, violence, because I think that plays into a lot of what we see with, like, Christian nationalism today, and, you know, uh, that's a whole nother topic. That's that another I get, conversation. Yeah, yeah, that I get all yeah. sorts of upset about, so. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, the I think it's important, though, for real, to, to empathize with that um, more nuanced um, perspective and approach there, most definitely. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, even with, I mean, I'm not speaking of, I'm not within one of those groups, but okay. I would think even within those groups, you would find Christians who would still hold out a hope for restorative justice, as you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, mm-hmm. rather than retributive justice. So mm-hmm. there are still people who want justice to be served. That doesn't have to be a violent, vengeful kind of reckoning. Mm-hmm. Um, as Christians, we want, and what God wants is reconciliation. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of the, the ultimate end game. Yeah, oh, for sure. And that, I mean, that's definitely a perspective that I would take. Um, I mean, I, I really like the idea of ultimate reconciliation, or some people call it universalism. Um, and I don't I don't put all my eggs in that basket, per se. Um, but just the idea of ultimate reconciliation is, is really beautiful. And it, it seems to me that that's um, kind of the God that we get throughout Scripture. Um, but also, too, I think... The restorative justice thing is really beautiful, um, especially too. I think of. Um, did you see the the movie Paul the Apostle that came out a couple years ago? I did not know. Can I spoil the ending for you? Because <laughs> it's. Sure. I think it plays in really nicely here, and it was really powerful. Um, so this movie, listeners, uh, depicts the life of Paul, and um, in the you know it shows uh, him being violent and persecuting Christians and and killing these people, men, women, and children. Uh, but then at the end of the movie, uh, kind of after Paul dies, um, and kind of like you see him um, in heaven, their depiction of heaven, uh, all those, uh, and I get emotional thinking about this, sorry, my students make fun of me because I cry a lot, but all, all these, um, all the people that you see Paul kill in the beginning of the movie are there waiting for him in heaven, and there's just this beautiful, beautiful moment of embrace where this this little kid, this little girl who's probably like four or five years old runs to Paul and just gives him the, the biggest hug and it's uh it's just such a beautiful thing and there's um of course that you know I'm not saying that there's uh you know that leaves out the the need for reconciliation uh which is a difficult process but just that ultimate goal there at the end um of restoration is just so beautiful that I think the the I don't know I have no words if, if, if it <laughs> it fire it fires up the imagination yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think too, yeah. uh, just with, and I talked a little bit about this. We actually, um, oh, actually, well, never mind, because they asked me not to 
we had a conversation with somebody in the past um, <laughs> that you may or may not know uh, that we talked about this idea of, of restoration um, and restorative justice and how restorative justice is more difficult, actually, than retributive justice. I think it's easy to say an eye for an eye. Um, it's easy to, you know, shoot somebody who shoots you, but it's much more difficult um, to go through this process of restoration and re- um which I think is is absolutely the uh, the approach that Scripture takes. So yeah, but awesome. Well, uh, Eric, thank you so much. Uh, this was a, a really great conversation. I know it was helpful uh, for me. I know it'll be helpful for listeners. Thank um, you. Yeah, yeah, great. And I know too. I want to uh, be able to share uh, some resources uh, with people uh, that you have out there because I know I have. Oh, if I can reach it behind me. Um, one of the books that we read uh, in your class when I took it with you uh, was The Violence of Scripture, Overcoming the Old Testament's Troubling Legacy. Uh, so that's a book you have out there by Fortress Press, which I'll be sure to, to link in our show notes. Um, but where else uh, Where else can people find you? Um, where, where would you like me to direct people? Sure. Probably if people wanted to, to read something else, I mean, the book that came before that one, Disturbing Divine Behavior, mm-hmm. um, Troubling Old Testament Images of God, it's also a Fortress Press, um, it's 2009. That would be the, my most sustained um, attempt to work through questions of divine violence in the okay. Old Testament. Um, and then I'm always happy to receive um, emails, a good way to communicate with me if people want to reach out that way. Um, it's just E-S-E-I-B-E-R-T at messiah.et. Du, I'm happy to receive emails there. I'm really not on social media so much, hmm. so that probably is not the best way. But an email would work great, and I'm happy to correspond that way. Sure, and hopefully um, this is uh, something that I can say. <laughs> if not, I'll edit it out. But you're also—it's true that that you've you've been working kind of on a, another book project, right? That's true. That's true. Yes. Um, my my most recent book um, that's will come out with InterVarsity Press. Oh, sweet. Um, probably not this year, but maybe early next year. It's called um, Enjoying the Old Testament, How to Have Fun with the First Part of the Bible. So nice. just an attempt to actually get people to read um, the Old Testament, because I find that many people don't tend to enjoy it um, a <laughs> this whole is lot, true. Or, or, or want to enjoy it, but get stuck partway through it. So just a lot of real practical stuff you can do to, to get engaged and stay engaged with that part of the Bible. Dude, awesome. Well, that sounds really great. And uh, we have uh, here at Rethinking Faith, we have a really great uh, relationship with IVP. Um, we've had a ton of their authors on and, uh, you know, IVP is a great organization. So um, maybe in the future we could have you back on and, and talk about that because I think that'd be really helpful for a lot of people. I'd love that. That'd be fun. Sweet. Awesome, Eric. Well, again, uh, thank you so much for your time. And for our listeners, I always sign off this way, Eric. I say, go Caps. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Thank you. <laughs>